welcome to Coffeehouse Theology. Um, I'm, I'm Brian Ball, and glad to have you here. Uh, we're walking through the goodness of God this semester. Um, been walking through, did Philippians, and then Romans 5, 6, and 7. I told Jay we're doing Romans 8, and his comment was, in a night. I said, probably not. And so we're doing the first half of Romans 8 tonight, uh, as, you, as you'll see from your outline. Um, you know, this is, this is the, I think what Piper called it, the Mount Everest of Paul's theology. Right? This is kind of the pinnacle. This is what he was kind of aiming for the whole time. And uh, it's just, we could, we could spend forever in, in this chapter. Um, but we'll kind of go through, go through the first half and see what kind of the Lord has for us. Uh, if you want to join on the email, the, the QR code's up there. Uh, we send out the notes from the previous week. Uh, each week, I give you updates on things. Glad y'all survived fall break. I think that's actually the first time on the first queue I called it fall break instead of spring break. So that's pretty good. Um, that's what a week off will do for you. You can actually kind of think now. Um, but, and then we've got a Slido, I think on the next one, there's our Slido room and uh, you can either hit the QR code or go to slido.com and type in three, seven, four, seven, five, seven, six. And that'll allow you to ask questions. And if, and you can also like questions that other people have asked It moves it to the top. And so it makes it more prominent for me. Again, I'm going to be here by myself for the rest of the semester. So please ask easy questions. If you don't mind if you can keep those to, to simple things. Um, and that's just obviously just a joke. We'll, we'll kind of go through whatever, whatever, y'all, whatever the Lord lays on your heart. Um, let's, pray, let's pray and get started. Father God, we're, we're thankful. Uh, thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Uh, thankful for how much you love us and for how good you are to us. Um, give us hearts and eyes to see your goodness. What, what, what we seek is what we'll see. And so give, give us hearts and eyes to look for your goodness and, and to find your goodness around us. It, it, there's a lot going on, uh, but you are still good and you are still in control and you are still sovereign. And we are so grateful to have the rock to stand on. Bless us tonight, Father, this teaching on the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, deepen our understanding of him, um, bring those who don't know to saving faith and uh, change us. Any time we encounter your truth, Father, we should walk away different. And so, Father, ch change us tonight. Don't let us be the same people that walked in here, that walk out. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. And I feel like this should kind of be coffee house theology after dark, for those that were y'all were raised in baptism, right? This is, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, which makes Baptists very nervous, right? Because we can't really put him on a dashboard, uh, KPI. He, uh, he, he, he's never brought a casserole to a fellowship that we know of, right? And so, so he kind of kind of makes, makes most Baptists very nervous. Uh, it's often associated with, with uh, kind of emotionalism and those kind of things. But a proper understanding uh, of the Holy Spirit is critically, is critically important. Um, it's so important that when Jesus was in, was in the upper room discourse, and that was his discourse in John, right, to his disciples before he started Holy Week. And so these were, these were kind of his last. It's, his, it's, a, it's a beautiful discourse. John 13, 14 to 17, depending on who, who cuts it up. And in, in uh, John 15, 27, 15, 26 and 27, he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Right, and then just a little bit further down in the next passage, Jesus notes that the, the teaching, right, notes that the teaching he has brought the disciples is hard. And so he goes on to explain the work of the Holy Spirit. So down in John 16, 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, right, because he's going away. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not, do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying it's to your advantage for me to leave. Right? That had to be really hard for the disciples to hear. Right? And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Isn't that incredible? Right? That the Spirit will guide us into all truth. Right? Speaking with, within us what comes from God the Father glorifying Christ. Right? So Paul in Romans 8 opens telling us he has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We started, started kind of what we're doing right back in Romans, in this little chunk of Romans, back in Romans 5, where Paul declared the good news that we were saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? We have peace with God. We have peace with God. Right? And more than anything else, what you need in your life is peace with God. Right? We have peace with God. And we were given the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Romans 6 anticipates the false notion that we are therefore free to sin, right? Which is unthinkable because we've died to our sin and now are slaves to righteousness. Romans 7 explains our relationship to the law, that the law is powerless either to justify or sanctify us, but it's good and holy and tells us what sin is. We do not conform our lives to the law, but to Christ, right? And that brings us to tonight's verse. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is good news. Right? We, we could pretty much stop there, right? We'd be done for the evening. I actually wrote a lot more, so we'll probably go ahead and go on if you don't mind. But, right, so for those who are in Christ Jesus, this is incredible news, right? This is, this is the goodness of God. There is therefore no condemnation. Right? And so while that's a great theological statement, right, and we all agree, what does it mean in terms of the lives we lead? Right? What does it mean to lead the uncondemned life? Right? We are not condemned. So how does that, how does that, what does that do with us? So let's talk about a couple of contrasts. The first contrast we'll address is condemnation versus conviction. So what is condemnation? In Christian terms, condemnation is most often used with regard to sin. And it's leading to death. Without Christ, we stand condemned, right? We stand in our sin condemned, right? We are dead. We have no hope. And when I think of condemnation, my head and heart go to a couple of places. And the first is John 8, right? And this is a passage that's a bit controversial, right? Because it's placed in different places in different, different manuscripts we have. But it certainly seems consistent with the teachings of John. And that's the woman caught in adultery. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Heard Ray Ortland preach two sermons on the, the words, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now, sin no more. Just on those two words, right? So using our definition of convention, right, what Jesus has told her that she has hope. That what she has done, while it deserves death under the law, will not end that way today. She stands uncondemned. Right? The older men knew that their own sin, knew that it deserved death under the law as much as hers. And they would have stood convicted if they convicted her. But not Jesus, right? The God-man living a sinless life. <laughs> right? if, you, if you're Christ, right? if you are in Christ, he does not condemn you either. 
And note the go and sin no more directive, right? Jesus is not condoning her sinful acts, but rather rejecting the false dichotomy of condone or condemn. Christ loved her so much that he could not let her continue the actions that lead to death. He would do anything, including dying on a cross, so that she could live. She could not live according to her terms, her feelings, her way. She had to live by what God declared as righteous. And that can only be done with the indwelling of the Spirit. Right? And he so clearly demonstrates right, his declaration in John 3. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? Benjamin's professor always says, you know, the, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it. He didn't send you to do that either. Right? He didn't send you to do that either. Right? We have a really hard time living this. Right? So many voices condemn us from inside and outside. They measure us against the law, their law, cultural expectation, that other more righteous Christian, right? that other more righteous pagan. Right? We try to conform to the expectation or performance of others or even our expect, or the expectations we impose on ourselves and we don't measure up and we feel condemned. But we are not. We are not, right? Those of us in Christ conform our lives to Christ's way by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The law is good and lets us know what sin is and helps us lead righteous lives. And, and this is where conviction comes in, right? Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit in a life to correct heart, mind, and body to be oriented to righteousness. The end of condemnation is death. The end of conviction is life. Let me say that again. The end of condemnation is death. The end of conviction is life, right? The Holy Spirit himself often convicts me in my, in my conscience, right? Compelling me to change my heart, my mind, my behavior, to conform to Christ. Sometimes the Spirit works through others, right? Either through their direct con con conviction, right? And confrontation to me, but more often than not through their example, Right? Have you ever been around somebody and they're doing godly things and that convicts your heart? Right. And so as they imitate Christ, we imitate them. A lot of y'all in the room have done that for me. Right? I've watched how you walk and it's convicted me to be more godly. And I'm so grateful for y'all. I'm so grateful for y'all. All right, two through four. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus by the law of sin, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we have been liberated, Right? Freed from the condemnation of sin and its penalty, death. I love the personal you, right, in the declaration, right? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, right? A personal, a personal address from Paul. We'll see that a little later. Most of us want so badly to be justified by our law and by our works, right? Even when it's not overt, we have subtle inclinations that provide a, that, that, that to provide a repayment or a justification in ourselves to be worthy of God's love, right? There's something in there that makes us feel like we have to do that, but it doesn't work that way. We are freed from that, right? As Christ is in you and you in him, he is worthy and you are free. Right? He is worthy. And you are free. All of that self-condemnation, all of that, all of those expectations, you are free. Right? Yeah, the, the guy that's taught me, I had coffee with my buddy Jimmy. Uh, and, and Jimmy's, we, we were in Bible, Bible study together 20 years. And um, Jimmy leans on the charismatic side. Uh, he, he, he's very much in the whole, was raised in that tradition, very orthodox belief, but, but very Holy Spirit oriented, Holy Spirit led. And um, 
the thing he kept teaching me was all of these things that I thought were not yet are already. That there were all these things that God promised, all these things, and I was like, yeah, that's going to be fantastic. He goes, no, 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 no. That's not going to be fantastic. That is fantastic. Right? Because these promises are real now. Eternal life is now. Right? Eternal life is now. Right? It, it, it's not a length of things. It's a quality. Right? You, you walk with God. The rabbi that I hung out with right, would always tell me there is no afterlife. And I was like, you a Sadducee? I'm not a Sadducee, you idiot. I was like, what, what's going on? He said, look, you either walk with God now and you have life or you don't walk with God and you don't have life. And he said, that's whether you're alive or dead. He said, there is only life and not life. There is only life and not life. Right? And Jimmy told me that, right, in, in, in the end, all of this resolves into love. Right? That's, what, that's what Corinthians tells us, right? In the end, there's faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, it all resolves into love. And so when God says to love God and to love others as our, we love ourselves, we're just rehearsing eternity, right? We're just practicing the reality that we're going to live in forever, right? Because whatever divides us, Christ is greater. Whatever separates us, Christ is greater, right? And in him and in the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jimmy brought to me. Was, and, and I've again learned more about the Holy Spirit from him than almost anybody. He was fan, he's fantastic. All right. Y'all still hanging with me? Okay. As we discussed in chapter six, it would be, be unthinkable for us to use this freedom regardless of consequence, right? As, as the flesh leads to death. Our freedom is to a glorious obedience of God's commands to live life according to how he says to live it, right? He's the author of life and knows best, how, knows best how things are. And when we live lives congruent with the reality of the good news of our salvation, our lives have a peace to them, right? Our lives have a peace to them. The gospel brings us this peace and has freed us from what the law could not, right? Paul says God, through Christ Jesus, did what the law could not do. The law is weakened by our flesh, right? Flesh, right? Our inability to fulfill its requirements. The law, right? Nothing wrong with the law. It's holy and good. But our flesh makes it functionally weak and unable to save us. We in our own strength can't fulfill the law, right? But Christ came incarnate, fully man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? And that's used because he was the only one that didn't write in flesh that didn't sin, Right, the rest of in the flesh are sin, sinful. And we, and we miss that a lot of times. We'll talk about that in a minute. But right, God came down. That, that's a, that is a massive statement. Um, Christ was a sin offering. Right, The Old Testament talks about sin offerings. And the sin offerings in the Old Testament were not able to satisfy the law. Right? They had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over. Right? But Christ died once for all. His sinless life and sacrifice on the cross in our place to give us life. And note that the word requirement is singular. It's the requirement of the law, not the requirements. That's because he fulfills it in its totality. I thought that was fascinating. It kind of blew me away, right? He saved us all, right? And I love that God wrote this law in our hearts, right? Back in Jeremiah, he says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he does this by the Spirit, right? Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, right? Even back in the prophets, this was a plan. Right? And this was always the idea, right? Deuteronomy, you go back to the Shema, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And then Rachel's favorites over Deuteronomy 30. Uh, but the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Right? And most of all, Christ came to fulfill this law. That's what this whole thing is. Right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he says in Matthew. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Wow. Right? Wow. 
And the most beautiful treatment of the incarnation goes back to that hymn in Philippians 2. Right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Amen? Right. The incarnation, do you get that God came down? And again, the cross is critically important. The resurrection is critically important. But the, the incarnate, the fact that God came down and walked among us in flesh, is that not just staggering to you? Do you know, when he, what did he give up to come down here? Right? What did he empty himself of? I don't know. That just, that just blows my mind. Blows my mind. So Paul developed, right? And so it, it, I think it's really interesting is that passage in Philippians also refers to mindset, right? Because that's the next step, next part of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on this flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, so Paul develops right a contrast between the flesh and the spirit in these verses, and it occurs in every verse. Paul is explaining why it's only possible to obey the law for those of us who walk in the spirit. So Paul is contact, contrasting starts, which is flesh, with pneuma, which is spirit. And in the flesh, Paul means the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed, our fallen human nature, or more compactly, the sin-dominated self, right? So it's the pre-saved us. Um, spirit here means the personal Holy Spirit himself, who not only regenerates, but indwells the people of God. The tension's reminiscent of over in Galatians um, where, they, where they are in irreconcilable conflict with each other. Um, and Paul con concentrates on the mind and the mindset of those who are characterized by either the flesh or the spirit. Right? And our mindset expresses our basic nature as Christian and unchristian. These contrasts do not mean that people are like this, either in the flesh or in the spirit, because they think that way, and although that's partially true, but that they think this way because they are this way, in the flesh or in the spirit. Right? In both cases, nature determines mindset. Right? Since the flesh is our twisted human nature, it desires, its desires will pander to our ungodly self-centeredness. Since the spirit is the Holy Spirit himself, the desires are all things that glorify Christ. That is to show Christ to us and form Christ in us. In philosophy, this is called essence and existence. Right, essence and existence. And one of the great philosophical questions is does essence, who you are, precede what you do? Does who you are, your essence, precede what you do? And what the world will tell you is this is what you do, right? And that's who you are. What you do is who you are. God says the opposite. God said this is who you are. Now go act like it. Right? This is who you are. Now go act like it. And the world, this is how the world gets messed up, right? Because they'll tell you, you can be anything, right? You can be anything. You can do anything. And then they tell you it doesn't matter what you do. And then they'll tell you you are what you do. And so if it doesn't matter what I do and I am what I do, it's pretty easy to law of the line that I don't matter. And you see this, it's wild to watch this collapse over and over and over again in people's lives, right? You've seen it, right? You've seen it, that what they do defines who they are, and then that collapses, and they're just lost. But in Christianity, God says, this is who you are. You are uncondemned. 
You are saved. You are loved. Right? You're free. Now go act like it. Now go act like it. And we have the problem with the go act like it part, right? Right? Because I think if we really believed all that down into our soul, we would live very different lives. I sure would, right? Maybe not you. Maybe y'all are great, but right? I sure would. I would lead a very different life. And so I strive for that every day, right? I strive to remind myself. That's why Jay, what Jay says is we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, right? Before you heat your feet hit the floor, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of who you are. Remind yourself of who God says you are. Right? Because of all the things you encounter in the day, that's all that matters. Right? All right. Now I gotta figure out where I'm in my outline. Oh, to, to set the mind, now I really like this. To set the mind is to make the desires of the flesh or spirit absorb objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. The question is, what preoccupies us? What ambitions drive us? What concerns engross us? How do we spend our time and our energy? What do we concentrate on? And what do we give ourselves up to? All of this is determined by who we are, whether we're in the flesh or in, by new birth in the spirit. Right. Let me read that again. To set the mind is to make the desires of the flesh or spirit absorb objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. The question is what preoccupies us, what ambitions drive us, what concerns engross us, how do we spend our time and our energy, what do we concentrate on, and what do we give our desires up to? All of this is determined by who we are, whether we are in the flesh or by new birth in the spirit. Right, our mindset has eternal consequences. Right? The mind of the flesh-dominated people is already one of spiritual death and leads inevitably to eternal death, alienated from God and renders fellowship with him impossible. The spirit-dominated people have a mindset of life and peace. They're alive to God, alert to spiritual realities, thirsty for God like nomads are for water in a desert. Right? They have peace with God, peace with neighbor, and peace within. Our eagerness to pursue Christ would certainly be more energetic if we were completely convinced it is the way of life and peace, right? Our mindset also concerns our fundamental attitudes toward God. The mindset in the flesh is hostile to God and deep -seated anima, has deep-seated animosity toward him. Those with the fleshly mindset are antagonistic toward all aspects of him, his son, and his people. They do not submit to God's law, nor can they do so. They cannot please God. Those with the mindset of the Spirit can obey the law in the Spirit's power and even delight in it, and they please God more and more. Right? We talk about that our lives should in, in increasing measure generate the fruit of the Spirit. Right? And that's what that is, that we please God more and more. So in summary, there's two categories of people, those in the flesh and those in the Spirit, who have two perspectives or mindsets, leading to two patterns of conduct, resulting into two spiritual states. Our mind and how we occupy it plays a key role in both to our present conduct and our eternal destiny. Still good? Okay. Often those who are, who are in Christ think on troubling things, right? Right, the global situation, the economy, social issues, institutions. Right? And, and when these things dominate our mind, we lose sight of our faith and walk to unhelpful and unhealthy places. We become anxious, fearful, and angry. Right? We become anxious, fearful, and angry. None of these are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? The heading of the section of Galatians in the ESV is actually keep in step with the Spirit, right? Amazing how all that goes together, right? That, that as we follow Christ, you see that. And our family asks that of each other on, on a regular basis, 
I'll ask my wife, do you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control coming out of me more and more? We ask that of our boys. They ask that of us. Because if we're really following Jesus, that's what we should see happening. Right? I, I can tell you specifically gentleness. I'm, I come from SEALs and Marines. Right? It's, it, my dad was a test pilot. I mean, we're, we're, that's just what we, that's who we are, what we do. And over the last decade or the last 15 years, the Lord has worked on me in gentleness. And so my wife, my kids can tell you that I am much more gentle. I'm still confrontational. But one, of my, one of the ladies who was on the trustees with me said, I'm not sure I always agree with your techniques, and you're kind of like a theological strong safety. But I'm really glad you're always back there lurking somewhere. She said, because I know nothing's going to get by you. So that's kind of been my role in the church. Um, but you see that, but that's been combined into the gentleness, right? Combined into that gentleness. All right, next section. You, however, Paul turns personal, right? You, however, right, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So note Paul's shift right from the general to the personal to you. The spirit dwelling in us is the first hallmark of authentic belief. Right? We have this privilege as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit fights and subdues the indwelling sin. Right? It's John 14, 17. The gift of the Holy Spirit is an initial and universal blessing received when we first repent and believe in Jesus. It's initial because it happened at the beginning. It's universal because it's happened to every last one of us that's in Christ. Right? Just being sure we're kind of clear. We're also not teaching universalism. Just go, right? Okay, I think you all figured that out by now, I hope. But just, just be clear. All right, so verse 9 shows us that, yeah, yeah, I can feel the worry in the room. Uh, verse 9 shows us that different expressions are synonyms. Being in the Spirit is the same as having the Spirit in us. The Spirit of God is also called the Spirit of Christ. Right? To have the Spirit of Christ in us, verse 9b, is to have Christ in us have Christ in us, verse 10a, right? The emphasis is the inseparability of the Trinity, right? That there's this Trinitarian activity involved in all of this, right? So Paul shows two major consequences of the Spirit's indwelling. Verse 10 and 11 speak in terms of life, and verse 12 and 13 in terms of debt or obligation. Note that this if you, right, in structure, in verses 10 and 11 are not questions, but assume indwelling, right? So it's a literary device, right, to, to point that out, just to make, because there is actually people who... Yeah, it gets way too academic. Uh, the body is dead in verse 10. It's most likely describing mortal, right? That once we are conceived, we start to die, right? Then that fits with the mortal bodies of 613 and 811 and our decaying and dying, right, in 2 Corinthians 4.10. So in the midst of our physical mortality, the spirit is alive, quickened or made alive in Christ, right? 611, 13, and 23, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Our bodies become mortal due to Adam's sin, our spirits become alive because of Christ's righteousness. That's pretty cool, right? That's back in chapter five. The ultimate destiny of our bodies is not death, but resurrection. The ultimate destiny of our bodies is not death, but resurrection. That's a big deal, right? That's really different than nearly all of the other world's ideologies. Right? Our bodies are not yet glorified, but the same spirit who gave life to our spirits will give life to our bodies. Right? Verse 11 shows that great Trinitarian presentation. Him who raised Jesus, the Father, Jesus the Son, of course, and the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and the spirit who dwells in me are the Holy Spirit. Right? How cool is that? How cool is that? Our resurrection, by the way, is not revivification or resuscitation. 
but a transformation into glorified bodies. And this is, I think this is thought. The raising and changing of our body into a new and glorious vehicle of our personality. I really like that. And it's liberation from all frailty, disease, pain, decay, and death. Praise be to God. Right? Praise be to God. And if orthopedic injuries, my orthopedic surgeon will be very sad, but I'm going to be very happy. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is not that the spirit is to be freed from the body, as many under the influence of the Greek way of thinking have held, but rather that the spirit will give life to the body. Right? We are not dualists. Right? We believe Jesus will resurrect us, and the same power that holds you now will resurrect your body on that day. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that just awesome? That's just awesome. Sorry. All right. So now we turn to the second consequence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our debt or obligation, right? So we are under no obligation to the flesh, our sinful nature. It brings only death. We are to live a righteous life under obligation to the Spirit, to live according to his desires and dictates. Earlier in Romans, we spoke of this, right, as slaves to righteousness. Remember, I was talking to you, we were, you're going to be either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, Right, so much of the world says it's my will or God's will. It's not. Right? Because of all the consequences of all of your sin, you will end up boxing yourself down into the consequences of these sin. When we're saved, right, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Unfortunately, a lot of times God leaves those consequences with us. Right? Sometimes He takes them away in His grace. But a lot of times that's what we end up living with. Right? All right, verse 13 puts this in stark terms, life and death. Um, I don't know that we take sin as seriously as we ought, right? We mostly think of it in terms of good and bad, a more correctable form of misstep. We should be careful not to mislabel sin as mere sickness because this gives the wrong idea. If we're sick, we can get better. Most sickness is not life and death. If we are sinful, we can't save ourselves and must turn to God, and it's life and death. There's a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. I think it was written in 59 or 63, and it's basically about our culture's turn from being sinful to being sick. Right? It's called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and it's about the turn of our, in our cultural kind of perspective that we're no longer sinful, but we're sick. Because if you're sick, then you can treat people and they can get better. And it's actually a lot of the basis of modern psychology is that people aren't sinful. And there is a place for modern psychology, right? There is mental illness is real, right? And, and we need to deal with those in real terms, but so is sinfulness, right? And there are things that, that medicine and, and doctors, like I break my leg, right? There are things doctors can do to help break my leg. It's the same thing with, with mental illness. But then there's also the nature of sin. That's a whole different gig. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, just check it. All right. Verse 13 sets up mortification. What a fantastic word that we don't say enough. Uh, the process of putting to death our fleshly misdeeds. I really like that. That was very British, and that was also from Stott. Uh, the verse clarifies at least three truths about this. First, what is mortification? Right? And mortification is neither masochism, which is taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain, nor asceticism, right? resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. It's rather a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do it justice except putting to death. Right? Do you get the weight of that? The verb here is in terms of execution. The misdeeds of the body are the sinful actions done outside of the service to God and others. So how does mortification take place? This is something we have to do. We have to put to death. It is not passive. We can only do this in the power of the Spirit. But we must take the initiative to act. We do not act like evil doesn't exist. We see it for what it is, identify it, and deal with it. Right? Matthew 29 has a graphic description of this. That is, if temptation comes through us, through what we see, what we handle, or visit, then we must be urgent in not looking 
not touching and not going, right? And so in controlling the very approaches of sin, we set our minds on Christ, seeking first the kingdom of God, right? So we do have a responsibility, right, to not put ourselves, and those situations are different for each of us, right? There are places where you will be tempted where I'm not going to be tempted, and places where I'm going to be tempted and you're not going to be tempted, right? And so that's not a hard and fast you do and don't. That's according to the spirit and the proclivities. And that's one of the reasons we're in community. Right? If you see me wandering where you know I'm going to have a problem, right? as my brother in Christ, as my sister in Christ, it's, you need to come up and talk to me. Right? That's why we're in community. That's why we love each other. Right? But we have to be in relationship with each other, each other to know that. Right? I think so. 529. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, there is no Matthew 29 that I know of, is Okay, that's good. I try not to make up books of the Bible to the best of my ability. Um, yeah, they'd be a little more of a problem than even the... Yeah, never mind. All right. Okay. Mortification take place. Um, we should practice mortification, right? We have an obligation to do it, and it's the only road to life. Um, verse 13 promises we will live. Right? Paul seems to be alluding to the life of God's children, led by the Spirit and assured of his fatherly love to which God comes in the next verses. Right? And this is one of several ways that the radical principle of life through death lies at the heart of the gospel. Right? Romans 6 says we die with Christ to sin and we rise in new life of forgiveness and freedom. Romans 8 is putting our evil deeds to death so we can experience the full life of God's children. We need to redefine both life and death. What the world calls life, a desirable self-indulgence, leads to alienation from God, which is real, in reality is death. Whereas putting to death all perceived evil within us, which the world sees as an undesirable self, and I love this word, self-abdignation, right? So it's denying what, what, we really should, what really should be good for us, right? Those evil things really are good for us. Right, so it's undesirable to, to take those things away, right? Is in reality the way to authentic life, right? Life is the opposite of the world, what the world would tell you to be, right? This indulgent self, right? This self-indulgence, right? Why, why wouldn't you do that, right? God made you that way, right? That's what self-indulgence is about, right? All right. Uh, so when we live by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body, right? We must actively combat sin and the power of the Holy Spirit with the tools God has given us, uh, including scriptures, the church, prayer, etc. We talked about the mindset above, that this is important concepts of our mindset. We often dismiss sins that don't seem to affect anyone else, but those result in death just like any other sin, and unbeknownst to us, affect others in ways of our attitude and our actions. Tolerated sin can harden our hearts and blind us to the things the Lord wants us to see. Right? All right, last chunk. Y'all still with us? Anybody alive? Have any casualties? Okay, good. All right. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Right. Each of these verses refers to those in Christ Jesus as children or sons, which of course includes daughters, and that this privileged status is related to the work of the Holy Spirit. We note the Holy Spirit leads us in our relationship with God. He replaces fear with freedom. In our prayers, he prompts us to call God Father, and he is the first fruits of our heavenly inheritance. The children of God, led and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, exhibit radical holiness fearless freedom, prayerfulness to the Father, and hope of glory. So we are led by the Spirit of God, right? Spirit led, right? Fadi preached about that, right? Sunday, right? Um, by the way, Fadi is, uh, Fadi is a dear friend of mine. Uh, that is, 
he's, to me, he's the personification of spirit-led order. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's as spirit-led as he is. It, it is awesome. You know, what, you know what his gig is, right? He's our church multiplication minister. You know what he does? He's raising up indigenous pastors in the hundred and some odd people groups in the Nashville area, right? In two years, he's only done like 50 or 60. Only, right? Yeah, we've, right. how many do we have before him? Zero, some, some one, right? He's only done 50 or 60 in the first two years. He is the most spirit-led. And then because, but one of the things we often think about with spirit-led, right? We think about flaky, right, or, or emotional. That is the last thing Fadi is. He is one of the most disciplined, one of the most, right? He does things in an order. But it has these beautiful results, right? Guy with your congregation, right, over, over in Murfreesboro, right? And the unity that the Holy Spirit's leading in that, right? With, with, and within those people groups, Right, within all these pe people, and a lot of times even we don't realize how divided those people groups are. Right? But the Holy Spirit brings unity in them. Praise be to God. Right? The Holy Spirit brings unity. I go, I, a couple of times a year, he'll, they'll bring together all these pastors. We'll all have lunch and they'll just tell stories. And you feel like you're living in the Old Testament. Right? The works of God are so powerful. Right? You feel like you're, you're walking through Old Testament times. Right? And that's where the led by the Spirit. Right? How, how were the Israelites led by the Spirit? Right? Cloud and a column of fire, right? Right? And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire gave them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Right? First GPS. Right? And I would love me some Google if I punched in an address and a column of smoke or flame filled up in front of me. Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? I know I need to turn left because the column of smoke just... Right, and somebody's going to probably figure that out on a heads-up display, and I'm going to should have patented that before I said this. Now that I'm kind of thinking of it as an engineer, right? How awesome was that, right? A column of fire and a column of cloud, right, to lead us. You know what's even better? The power of that column of fire and that power of that cloud indwells you, indwells me, right? Because we're not led by a column. What are we led by? The Spirit. Right, that column of fire is in you. So if that power is in you and you're free, what are we doing? Right? If, if that power is in you and we're free, what are we doing? The spirit, replaces, the spirit replaces fear with freedom. Freedom as the sons of God, right? Many times today, and then and he says, many times today we see adoption as rescuing a child from a dire circumstance, right? And that's certainly a noble pursuit. And that's also true of our adoption in Christ, right? We were in pretty dire circumstance, right? We were helpless, hopeless, and dead. So that's pretty dire. As a matter of fact, that's about as dire as you get, right? And, and he adopted us. But in the Roman culture to which this was written, Adoption was meant more often as a sense of choosing someone to carry on a name. So think about that, right? God has chosen us as adopted sons and daughters that we may carry on the good name to the world around us, right? The whole different, there's a whole different perspective on adoption, right? It seems to cozy up to holy, right? To set apart and designate for a purpose. And our purpose is to glorify God. Benjamin and I were talking this week about, because um, this is the weird things that we talk about, we we're talking about the priesthood of the believer. And one of the things, the comment Benjamin made to me, which, which challenged me a great deal, right? What do we think of when we, right? The priesthood of the believer, when we kind of talk about it in general, is a response to Catholicism, right? That there's, a, that there's some dude that stands between you and God. All right, so we talk about the priesthood of the believer, that there's no one between you and God, right? And that was part of a priest's gig, right? That was a part of the priest's role. You know what the other part of the priest's role was? To represent God to the people. Stop and say that again. So the other part of the priest's role was to represent God to the people. So if we're priests, if we're the priesthood of the believer, right? We're the priesthood of the believer, right? The Bible tells us then we don't just, well, there's just nothing standing between us and God. But wherever we go, we should be, you ever met a priest, right? The collar thing and the black, right? 
you kind of feel a weird holy presence just by his outfit, right? Isn't that kind of weird, right? People should sense that holiness because of the spirit in us, right? Benjamin puts a moral pressure by his presence. When Benjamin is around you, you will feel a pressure to be a better person, to be a more godly person. That's just for the way God built him. It's the most bizarre thing, right? We should all be like that, right? And not a do-gooder, but a no-Jesus, right? Not, a, not to conform people to the law, to conform people to Christ. Our lives should put that kind of moral pressure, right? Free and fire in us, right? Free and fire in us. Mm. So we are slaves to righteousness from chapter 6, but we do not have a spirit of slavery that would cause us to fear. We have nothing to fear from the world, right? All power and authority is ascribed to God, and the spirit dwells in us. We've talked about that, right? The definition of fear. Fear is ascribing power or authority to something, right? And Isaiah 11 says, all, right, to fear the Lord, all power and authority raised to the Lord. Isaiah 12 says, do not be afraid. The world's got nothing. Right? If you ascribe all power and authority authentically to God, the world has nothing. Right? That's when, when, when I read fear, that's, that's what I always see in Scripture. Right? Uh, the spirit of slavery denotes the contrast of two eras, right? Before and after our salvation. You know, true, we are still slaves of Christ from, verse, from chapter 1, verse 1, of God in 6.22, and of righteousness in 6.18. But the, these slaveries, far from being incompatible with freedom, are its essence. Freedom, not fear, now rules our lives, right? God designed this life and tells us how to live it according to his design, right? That's freedom, right? That's freedom. You ever tried to saw with a hammer? You can. It takes a while, right? But that's not freedom, right? Because that's not what it was designed for. God has a way we are designed to live. And it's freedom when we live according. And that law tells us what that is. And when we live according to that, we're free. Right? By crying out, God, Abba, Father, the Spirit testifies with us that we are God's children. Right? What a beautiful picture of the Spirit confirming our relationship to God. The echoes of Jesus' prayer in the garden, right? When he addressed his, his Father. Right? This is the, and this was unique in Judaism. Right? As Jesus, as before Jesus, no one would dare pray in this manner. And now it's our privilege to pray as such. Right? The Spirit is also the first fruits of our inheritance. If we are His children, we are His heirs. Certainly this refers to our heavenly inheritance, our inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade. It also means our inheritance of God Himself. We remember that the Levites were given no inheritance among their brothers because the Lord Himself was their inheritance. Back to Deuteronomy, because it all comes back to Deuteronomy. Whom I have in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our future inheritance, guaranteeing that the harvest will follow in due course. The same indwelling of the Holy Spirit that assures we are God's children also assures that we are his heirs. The qualification is that provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Scripture has a strong emphasis that suffering is the way to glory, a stark contrast with the idea that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. First Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The essence of discipleship is union with Christ, which means identifying with him in both his suffering and his glory. All right, so this opening chapter, I love and I love this summary, uh, shows the good, right, these, op these opening verses show the goodness of God in the multiple ministries of the Holy Spirit, and I wrote them down for you, right? He's liberated us from the bondage of the law, right, you're free, we're free. He empowers us to fulfill the law's just requirement. We live according to the Spirit and set our minds on his desires. He lives in us, gives life to our spirits, and one day will give life to our bodies too. His indwelling obliges us to live his way. His power enables us to put to death our body's misdeeds. He leads us as God's children. 
He bears witness to our spirit, and and this is what we are. He himself is a foretaste of glory. Amen? We good? All right. I feel like we need to pray, and then we'll go into questions. All right? Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for these words. Man, thankful for your spirit and, and all that he does in and through us. Um, help us be more aware. Help us be more sensitive to the spirit, Father. To hear his voice and to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at questions. Easy questions, right? We, we agreed on that in the beginning. That's pretty good, 735. All right. How old was Paul when he converted on the road to Damascus? I don't remember. Um, I know that somewhere, but I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sure that's in commentaries. And Jesus told the woman and us, go and sin no more. Is it possible to live a completely sin-free life? Would he have told her that, it were, if, that if it were not possible? It's not possible to live a sin-free life because we are between the flesh and the spirit. When we are glorified, we will be away from the presence of sin. Praise be to God. Right? Till then, we're all going to struggle. Right? And it's a battle between our flesh and our spirit. And that's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process of lessening the power of sin on us. Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. week or two ago. Right? right? That's, what, that's, what, that's what that is. So, no, that's, that's not what we can do. Barbie's new tagline, oh goody, in their commercial is, you can be anything in case we're unsure about what the world tells us or about our identity. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. Michael, Michael Jordan, right? Just do it. I've tried to just do what he does. It hurt, I hurt myself severely. <laughs> I've had 15 concussions trying to do what he does. It's been highly unsuccessful. I even quoted Philippians 4 a couple of times just to see. Right, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Apparently, I cannot. All right. So Hebrews 12, 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, no sacrifice of sin for left, is that likely to go? Is that, that like go and sin no more? Um, I guess I put that, if we deliberately go on sinning, uh, no sacrifice for sin is left. I put that in the first, in 1 John uh, 5. Uh, he says that if we go on sinning, God's love is not in us. If we go on sinning, God's which doesn't say that if we sin, right, we sin because what what happens with the Holy Spirit is in me, and so when I sin, there's a there's a conviction, and I repent, right. And if I'm wise, I will put things in my life that help me stay not stray that way. Will I sin again? Yep. Right. And so, but that's not keeping on sinning because I repent and turn back. It's if you unrepentantly keep on sinning. God's love is not in you. Now, what do we have to be able to do if, if, in order to know that someone is going on sinning, right, you have to be in relationship with them, right? Because you can catch me at my worst moment and you will, assume, you will be assured I am a demon spawned from hell, okay, right? And like the rest of you, right? But, right, you've catch certain moments in my life, I am a demon, you go, that's the demon spawned from hell. I don't even know how he rose up out of the grave, right? And there are other moments you will, you will see me and you'll go, that's obviously a saint, Right? Because God is working so freely and so graciously in me. It's not me, but it's him, right? And when he comes through so clearly, right? They're, they're beautiful. And I've been in some of those beautiful moments where you're kind of like, what, what on earth? Right? Why, why would he give me the gift of letting me be here? Why would he the, give, give me the gift of letting me see this, right? And so both of those things are true. And so I guess that, I put that more in the, how was my spring break? Very nice. Uh, it was fantastic. 20th anniversary last Saturday, so I'm very, very happy. She, and, she, and she upped. We're, we're on kind of one-year contracts at this point, from what I can tell. And so she's keeping me, keeping me around for the next year, so that's very... Uh, what version of the Bible? I, I read the ESV. Yes, somebody actually said ESV version. Uh, what is Hen 3? Oh, yes, that's a typo is what that is. Yes, there's Hen. We don't have a book named Hen. Um, um, yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Yes, Hebrews 35. Thank you for correcting that. Um, and I think that's... I think we're good. We good? Is this helpful? And it's fun stuff. We're going to do the backside of, backside of eight on the next one. I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to do it in two or th- one or two weeks. 
Uh, so you can pray for discernment on that. I was looking at doing this in one week and figured we would be blistered and we would also be here until Fadi started preaching on Sunday. So I decided we'd, we'd cut this off on Thursday night. All right, we good? Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Oh man, are we thankful. Uh, thankful for the gift of your spirit. I, you know, the incarnation continues to blow me away. And then uh, to Jesus to say that I'm going to go away because it's better that the Spirit comes. That's, that's just mind-boggling, Lord. That's just mind-boggling that you, you would be so gracious to us. And so, Father, increase our sensitivity to the Spirit, right? Ra- raise our spiritual agility, right? Our ability to when the Spirit calls to move and to go, right? Like Abraham, when God said go and he went. Would, would we all be that sensitive to the call and the leading of the Spirit? And so put those hearts in us, Father. Develop those hearts in us. Develop those, minds. Develop those eyes that see him, that see you, that see your goodness. Train our eyes, train our hearts on the goodness of God. Father, don't leave us the same. We have encountered your truth tonight, Father, so please change us. Please let us walk more like Christ as we leave. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.